So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I talked you through the outlining of Flighting Fancy, the third of the four Vaux and Tiravam stories that make up the second quarter of the short story cycle novel. Still untitled, don't worry. <laughs> One day I'll know what I call this damn book. Today I'll be taking you through the final Vaux and Tiravam story, getting us up to the halfway point of outlining this novel. That story's holding title is Carry Me From Coltoon, and yeah, it's the big story of Vaux and Tiravam falling out, or kind of realizing that maybe they've grown apart. Well, we'll see. In outlining this story, I definitely had some experiences we'll be talking about, including writing under stress or during stressful times, reassessing methods of outlining in particular, and being reminded of the kinds of things that I wouldn't say you can only discover, but that certainly I am more likely to discover in the actual act of writing prose as opposed to outlining. I started working on Carry Me From Coltoom a couple weeks ahead of finishing the previous story, Flighting Fancy, in part because these act finales, Disgrace the Stone, Carry Me From Coltoom, The Gibbet, and the final story of the book currently called Stairs, seize my imagination. They're destinations that I'm aiming toward with the stories leading up to them in each quarter, even though I try to write a story to stand alone. Because I'm aiming toward them, I'm thinking about them a little bit in the background as I work on the beginning and middle stories of each act, and eventually these thoughts reach a critical mass I'm too excited about to ignore. So I let off a little pressure by going back through all my notebook pages, collecting and rewriting notes or putting down page references for really long old notes all together on a fresh page or two. These included a final conversation between Vo and Teravan for the story. That was from all the way back in August 2020. That's how early I started thinking about that particular part, the end of the act end, right? Because that final conversation between these two characters, I mean, that's the big payoff, and boy are payoffs fun to think about. This act of collecting all the old notes that might be relevant to this story naturally produced some brainstorming without me even really trying, right? Because I was just tripping over a whole bunch of my old ideas. But at some point, you need to figure out some sense of direction, which I began to do by asking myself, what are Vaux and Turavam's greatest fears and what's most important to them in this story? We'll come back to the answer to that because I didn't know when I thought of the questions, but I wrote them down because I thought they were worth answering later. What I did feel at the time that I knew really well was the fact that the emotional journey of this story was the important thing. And something I've been thinking about in my writing for a long time was that I wanted to get better at kind of plotting out the emotional journey, which is to say, like, what's the emotional journey, Oliver? Well, the emotional journey to me is the feelings that you want the reader to feel or would like to try and inspire in them. And the order in which you would like them to feel them, <laughs> what you would like them to feel in each scene. And that's not something I've ever given enough thought to, I think, before I started writing, outside of a vague sense of the kind of shape of the story and, oh, this bit's really gonna get them, you know? I'd always handled that side of things very intuitively, which is not inherently bad, I know, but I wanted to try to be more precise. 
And so I thought, okay, well, this is key to the story. And we want the reader to be invested as always, but maybe the rhythm of what they're invested in, how, you know, feels extra important. So I kind of jotted down, I want, you know, intrigue. For example, a key aspect of the story that I had been thinking about for quite some time was that Vo and Tiravam would have been separated for almost a year, maybe 10, 11 months, with Vo leaving town for reasons I'll get into, without telling Tiravam why. And so Tiravam just has to kind of get on with their life, and Vo goes off and does whatever she does, and then comes back. And so I want the reader to be like, where did Vo go? What did she do? What did Tiravam do during that last year, right? In any story where a beloved pair of characters are kind of on the outs, I think hope is an important emotion, right? In this case, hope that Vo and Teravan will maybe reconcile or figure out whatever it is that's making things kind of weird between them, even though the structure of the book tells the reader otherwise. I think you can still end up feeling that hope that at least they'll part on good terms. I also, at this point, feel pretty sure that I want Vo to reject a final olive branch of Teravan's. And therefore, I want the reader to feel a powerful dismay when that happens and not just to be like, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, I feel like in stories like these, I have often felt a very bittersweet feeling, you know, where things are kind of working, but maybe not. Or they work in a way where you're like, oh, I don't like that, but it, I guess it's the only way it makes sense for it to go, you know. And so I kind of thought, well, definitely there'd be some bittersweetness where perhaps Vo learns how Tiravam is really happy with a new partner, but this root to Tiram's happiness denies Vo the joy she seeks of returning to the friendship that she's had with Tiravam before she went away for the year. Uh, but let's not get too bitter here. One thing I find that's kind of interesting about stories about friendships that fall apart, some of the ones that I've enjoyed, is literally feeling joy at seeing the two characters, perhaps uh, reunited after a while, as they're going to be in this story, operating at peak efficiency, whether, you know, it's sort of like a literary story where their friendship is just firing on all cylinders and they're having a great time and or, you know, because that could be in this story, too. Um, you know, when you have adventurers and just for a moment, they absolutely got each other's backs in a sword fight and are equipping and are just doing everything you love at absolute just peak magnitude and efficiency, whatever. Right. It's just great. Oh, this is the thing you love which is manipulative because all writing is manipulative, but it's manipulative because it's the writer being like, yeah, here's that thing you love. I'm going to take it away in the next scene and you're never going to get it again. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of joy at Vo and Tiravam being their best together is definitely going to be in this story. I, well, I'm going to try and inspire it along with just the satisfaction of like, here's what you came for. You know, you want to see these two doing well together. So after I decided that's what I wanted, I made a rough list because I was like, well, what's the order? You know, I figure intrigue at the beginning. That's kind of what you want at the beginning of any story and what people to be hooked, be pulled in. Then I thought maybe kind of a bittersweet kind of thing where it's like, oh, you start to see that their friendship is kind of off a little bit, but it's nice to see them together. And I thought, OK, well, then we can have like an inciting incident hitting at the greater plot of whatever the heck the story is, because there's also got to be a plot, right? And things have to happen. Um, and then that could lead to kind of hope where it's like, oh, well, this inciting incident leads to the pair of them needing to team up. Ah, yes, here's hope that things will work out because they're teaming up just like always. And then maybe we get that joy of watching the peak, you know, efficiency, basically, and that satisfaction of getting, you know, what you always come to for a Vo and Teravim story, which is Vo and Teravim having adventures, swashbuckling, good stuff. And the team up is really paying off perhaps just before, oh, dismay, as you know, things within the plot happen so that they perhaps save the day but lose the friendship or seem to be losing the friendship because what they achieve plot-wise does not change the underlying issues between them. And then as we get to the very end where it seems like, oh, maybe they're going to save it, maybe not, we have a little more bittersweetness perhaps, a little more, you know, hope. 
followed by at the very end intrigued by where Vo is going to go next and what she's going to get up to without Tiravem and maybe even a little curiosity just kind of wonder like oh I wonder what Tiravem is going to get up to on their own but mainly I want the reader to be intrigued because I want them to keep bloody reading <laughs> and go into the you know third quarter the Conan-ish era of Vo's adventuring days. So yeah, that's as far as I got, and then I kind of took two weeks off to go back and finish Flighting Fancy because I didn't want to get too sunk into the next story without finishing the previous one's uh, outline. And by the time I came back, because I never entirely stopped thinking about Carry Me from Coltoon, the, again, holding title, um, yeah, I was like, you know, this plot, this adventure could wind up feeling really tacked on if I'm not careful, because, you know, as I wrote here to myself, Sword and sorcery isn't generally a genre where people sit around discussing their feelings, but we also don't want the action to feel obligatory, perfunctory. We have to be almost as into it as the big friendship finale, as the big emotional journey. And Vo's turn to, you know, Conan mode or whatever the heck, you know, continuity seasoning I might insert. Because, you know, it's an act and I might indulge a little bit in that. So this led to some further brainstorming, which got me to some interesting places like, can Vo ride a horse? She grew up on an island with no horses. And then I had the kind of light bulb moment where I went, oh yeah, of course, you know, how can I make sure that the emotional friendship journey thing is married to the plot so that the latter doesn't feel perfunctory? The thematic statement. What's the big idea? What's the big thing I'm trying to say with my dang story? And can that big dang thing I'm saying be expressed both in the friendship arc and in the plot, the adventure that they have while discovering that maybe their friendship doesn't work so much anymore. To try and figure out what that was, I had to remind myself, well, like, what is this story? You know, this is the story of two friends realizing they've grown apart, with both having trouble accepting this, but only one actively rejecting, you know, continuous change in life and a disparate bid for essentially a kind of stasis, that being Vogue. And I made a note thinking, oh, you know, this makes me think of kind of necromancy and trying to break or stall the circle of life. And then I thought, oh, you know, and I also was thinking, you know, about how often a clean break is preferable to a gradual petering out and how a messy break is usually the result of one party desperately seeking control over the situation. Better to smash a vessel to the ground than deal with the gradual leak that it empty it anyway, a leak you can't stop which is a cute little metaphor, I suppose, for when sometimes people just go, ah, you suck, and end a friendship because it's less painful than just realizing, ah, you guys don't have as much in common anymore and this thing's going to bleed out over the next few months. Lucky me, as I was thinking about all this, I just tripped over a great, <laughs> a great way of putting what I was fumbling towards. That sentence that I realized was my thematic statement is, you can't take everything with you as you go on. And that is one of the last sentences in the introduction to Rokanan's world. Rokanan's world being one of Ursula K. Le Guin's novels, and me finding that, not in the novel itself actually, but in an excellent book I strongly recommend called The Language of the Night, Essays on Fantasy and Science Fiction by Ursula K. Le Guin, with introduction by Susan Wood, who also edited it. And yeah, it's a bunch of essays and stuff from the 70s, but also the introductions to her novels thus far. And I went, you know, great, because really a big problem here is that Tiravam has learned that lesson. You just can't take everything with you every step of the way through your life. You got to let some stuff go practically every day of your life. Bo does not know that lesson, or at least refuses to accept it. And that's the crux of the rift between them. And I thought, OK, well, what if the, there's a villain and that villain is also refusing to accept that you can't take everything with you as you go on? Which is also making me think maybe Vo's a little sympathetic towards the villain, which can be interesting. 
So at this point, I had some details I haven't shared with you yet, but I will. And I had my thematic statement that I felt like, yeah, I could express that through both the like plot and through the friendship and emotional journey and thus weave them together nicely and begin at least to make them feel as one whole rather than two things happening side by side, one of which, frankly, I'm more interested in. So at this point, with the thematic statement and a bunch of other stuff coming to mind, burbling up from all that brainstorming I mentioned, I felt comfortable doing my, what I've referred to before as my like red pen outline stuff, sort of the foundational concepts that I just really want to make sure I've got down, starting with the thematic statement, you can't take everything with you as you go on, then basic stuff like the perspective, which will continue as it has been in all of these stories, a third person limited, bouncing between Vo and Tiravam's perspectives, past tense, the trajectory, which is basically the sh broad shape of the story, you know, I figure, well, we'll start from Vo and Tiravam reuniting and Vo not really liking the changes that she sees on her return to maybe three quarters into the story. I want a moment of perfect synchronicity of the two of them, you know, that I mentioned before with the satisfaction and the joy there, to Tiravam not liking changes that she has started to notice, pardon me, he in the story has uh, started to notice in Vo and ending finally on Vo and Tiravam's parting. Sure, got it. Uh, now, for the Vo and Tiravam stories, I've also added to this, like, what's up with their friendship? I better know, but I mean, for this story from the get-go, I knew what's up with their friendship, so not a problem. They've been apart for a year, they've grown apart, and they neither wants to admit it, although Tiravam is willing to admit it by the end. General themes, as opposed to the thematic statement, you know, while we've got choosing what to keep as you move through life, realizing and accepting when something is not your choice, Change is the only constant, etc. Yeah, I think that's enough for themes. The focus of the story, absolutely, Vo and Tiravam's will they or won't they stay pals storyline. The sort of change and stasis stuff that I mentioned. And as I wrote here, but I've not talked about yet in this recording, the baby subtext. Baby? What baby? I'll get to that in a minute, don't worry. <laughs> and then, yeah, another thing I've tried to figure out in each of these stories, but not the ones from the first act or the ones in the acts to come, is um, also I like the idea of something going on with Vo and Tiravam relationship-wise in each of these stories because that's just the period of life I'm trying to capture here is a period where they're both kind of doing a lot of dating and figuring out what's going on with that. Dating, sleeping around, trying to find true love, you know, various permutations, but just, yeah, stuff involving partners of some kind or another. So yeah, the big element of this for sure with them coming apart is that Vo keeps wanting to adventure and Tiravam doesn't really want to. Tiravam has decided that he wants to settle down and part of that, in his case at least, involves settling down with a partner. So, for reasons I'll get to in a second, don't worry, this is all going to fold in on itself soon. I'm going to stop saying things I'll get to in a second. Pardon me, but order of information, right? Like, I did not figure things out in an order that is the best order for relaying those things to you. So yeah, a partner that I would like to be minimally present in the story. So the focus is on Vo and Teravem and basically just the idea of a partner who could be more important, even a romantic one, more important to Tiravam than Vo, is enough to set off Vo. So the idea of him is really all we need. I also want him to be minimally present because I'd like to save him and me inventing him for a novella idea that I got. <laughs> yeah, Vo, meanwhile, I do not see as having a partner in this one, actually. I considered it maybe some kind of wizard boyfriend that I could weave into this, which would be kind of weird and unexpected given her hatred of wizards, starting from the very first story. But I don't know. I made a bunch of notes, and in the end, I don't think I'm going to use them. So Vo's actually going to be single for this sucker. I think that works best, too, because it also helps underline that like Vo is alone and wanting to not be alone and wanting to not be alone with her best friend, Tiravan. 
And so we get to the meat and potatoes of a story outline, the story and plot, for which I needed all this other stuff I've mentioned so far. The story is relatively easy, because I've had that in mind from the beginning. This is the story of two friends struggling, though more than Tiravam, with wanting such different things from life that it makes continuing as they have impossible, causing Vo to sever relations entirely in a fit of pique. Okay, so what's the plot? What actually happens to tell this story? Well, now everything's going to get lined up in a nice linear row for you. This begins with me telling what I have in mind roughly for the background of this story, little pieces of which I will hint at and reveal in it, but after I figured out what those bits and pieces might be, I kept thinking about them, and I was like, what if I wrote another thing that wouldn't fit in this novel, but could be a cool, like, bonus text of some kind? What if I wrote a novella all about Vo's year, or a little under a year, whatever, away from Coltoon? What if Vo, in her, you know, and this is by no means me punishing the character for this, it's just a risk of having kind of a slutty phase in your late 20s in a pre-birth control society, what if, and even now with birth control, but you know, what if O got pregnant, realized pretty early on, and wasn't sure what to do because she didn't really want to keep the kid, especially because it would be impossible to keep living the life lived for herself that she has been living since the end of the first quarter of the book with Disgrace the Stone, where she gave up on heroism. Well, I rather like the idea that with all the people from all around the world coming through this port city of Coltoom, that Vo has at one evening, you know, in the bar or whatever, heard mention of there being a place for people with uteruses to go to to safely give birth if they are a kind of a warrior, you know, of, of a, who, someone who lives that life and accrues the kinds of enemies that you do as a warrior. And in that place, you can choose to either be sort of kept secure during your vulnerable nine months of pregnancy and uh, immediate after birth and all that and be given good treatment and so on. Or you can get perhaps some sort of um, abortion situation. I haven't decided about that yet. But for me, I like the idea that Vo, not wanting to tell Teravim about this, maybe feeling shame, I'm still working on her motivations, leaves the city without telling Teravim maybe leaving just like a little note like, be back soon, bye, you know, um, and goes off to this kind of secular refuge full of warriors who have uteruses that are guarding other warriors who are currently having their uteruses occupied. <laughs> and that could be like a whole story, tracing those nine months in which she's pregnant, and even a few months afterward um, with what she decides to do with the baby, which ultimately I felt was give it up. Killing the baby felt unnecessary and cheap, and eh, I don't feel like killing babies, what can I say? But I like the idea that Vo would choose to give up the baby because all she wants to do is return to life like it was before having the kid. And I felt like, yeah, there could be a whole story about stuff going on at this place. Uh, I think it's a really intriguing idea and location and so on. So yeah, I might do a novella all about that. And I might even do what they used to do back in the day, um, kind of, my own take on it. There used to be things called Ace Doubles. Uh, the publisher Ace would publish a pair of basically novellas. They call them novels, but they'd be pretty short. And have one on one side of the book and then flip the other one around upside down and facing the other side. So you'd have different covers on either side of the book, different novels, different novelists. Uh, generally speaking, there'd be a big name and a small name. And this was a way of promoting the smaller name. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to steal that format and approximate it for myself to have on one half of this quote unquote Ace Double, the story of Vo while she's off being pregnant and everything that happens there. And on the flip side, tell the story of what goes on with Tiravim in Coltoom, which at this point I'm feeling like Tiravim would sort of fairly quickly fall out of the thieving life without Vo there to have adventures with her. 
and uh, or him, depending on the day. Uh, and Tiravam would perhaps follow their dream of being a playwright and fall back a bit into their you know background of being a noble person, and maybe find a new partner who has money, a nobleman who could help them purchase and run a theater. And by the time Bo returns at the beginning of this story, Carry Me from Coltoom, Tiravam has actually gone pretty big into the idea of settling down. And thus we get to what I hope will be a relatable thing for people, which is that phase in life which tends to be around your late 20s, early 30s, where some people want to keep partying, some people want to, you know, move to the suburbs and have a kid. And even if a reader hasn't gone through that phase in life yet, I think people of almost any age can, I mean, above middle school, <laughs> are familiar with the whole feeling of a friendship that's drifting apart because you're growing apart and there's nothing you can do about it and that sucks. So will that double novella happen? We'll see. I'd like to finish this novel first, but if I finish it and people are into it, I could see that happening. And whether or not it happens, the broad strokes of what I see in my head when I imagine those twin tales inform this one. See, that thematic statement of you can't take everything with you as you go on, well, Bo and Tiravam cannot take their friendship past the point of this tale because of how they've changed. Bo can't take her secret baby because she gave it up, in large part because she knew it was incompatible with the life she wanted to return to. The life she learns in the story is not there to be returned to. Tiravam, the former noble, aspiring playwright, and now former thieving adventurer, cannot take the attitude and values which they had during the early days of fleeing home for Coltoom with them further in life if they're going to live this more settled, comfortable existence running a theater with their partner, who increasingly I think is going to be a nobleman of Coltoom. And I'm thinking the villain of the piece will be the dying overlord, the sort of dictator of Coltoom. Yes, the overlord of Coltoom is dying. Doesn't really matter for what, but you know, they're dying. Uh, they're in a bed, you know, they look sickly. <laughs> and that overlord cannot take his city-state kingdom into the afterlife along with all the treasures and the people. Though he's going to try. Oh yes, villainy and plot. Here's what I'm thinking. The overlord has made it so that when his heart ceases to beat, barrels of, let's say, gunpowder stashed around key points in Coltoom will go off. In fact, I'm going to have them stashed around in key points of old Coltoom mentioned in the last story, Flighting Fancy, the sort of old city of Coltoom beneath the current one causing the collapse of present Coltoom, in turn causing an earthquake, so the whole thing will become one mass grave, bringing his city with him to the afterlife, right? Kind of like a pharaoh being buried with their servants, kind of thing. This has been arranged by a wizard who, bribed with promises of the incredible energy freed by such mass death, energy he can harness necromantically to his own ends, Meanwhile, gosh, there's been scheming in the court by those who assume the wizard is scheming to take over the city. And that will create a mess that Vo and Tiravam can blunder into the middle of. Why not? Further mess, the necromancer's plan is to betray the king by only detonating the gunpowder so that it destroys the city surrounding the palace, feeding him great soul power, right? But not the palace itself where the necromancer plans to be. Then the necromancer will rule over this new mass grave, animating an army of the dead. Even old Kultum's bony old people will probably rise with the recently dead to begin conquering his own kingdom. I plan on having Vo criticize uh, this wizard for their lack of imagination. Ultimately, I like the idea that Vo and Teravem will thwart the wizard 
and Vo will have to keep the king's heart pumping in perpetuity, or at least for long enough, that minions of the court plot trying to undo, you know, get in the way of the wizard can go remove all barrels of the gunpowder. Okay, so now I've got some big villainy, some big plot, some big nasty thing happening for Vo and Tiravan to get sucked into, first through their own curiosity, and then they'll be embroiled in it simply in a bid to try and survive. And I've had some other brainstormy thoughts along the way about how, like, the most important thing and the greatest fear, right? Remember I mentioned those? You know, for Vo, definitely the most important thing in the story is that she made the right decision when giving up her baby because there's no going back on it, and her greatest fear, therefore, must be that she's made the wrong call. It's important that I know the answer to these two questions because they are going to be what is motivating every little bit of Vo's behavior throughout the story underneath any more immediate concerns like fighting a minion of the wizard or something. Meanwhile, for Tiravan, what's most important to him is the new man in his life, the family that they'll raise with them, the theater which represents a more secure and safe life than thieving. You know, all that is sort of tied up one big ball. You know, security, I guess you would say. Security for the future is what's the most important thing to Tiravan. And their greatest fear is that they won't have that security and that they'll just be a thief forever, growing old if they're lucky, and being penniless because thieves don't tend to hold on to their money. Now, that's a pretty high stakes, big, 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 big plot to get a couple of thieves, one of whom has become a theater manager and the other of whom has just returned after being away for a year, involved in. And for a brief moment, I got a little concerned that, oh, geez, you know, there's going to be a lot of details. I'm going to have a lot of things to explain. It's just going to be full of exposition. I don't know. But luckily, my friend Jess, who I talked with about this on the phone, gave me the good advice of just, you know, stay low on the details. Keep Vo and Tiravam and the reader largely in the dark. The character is the thing. You know, she told me, emphasize the conversations they have while investigating this whole thing. And I was like, oh, yes, of course, of course, good. Just keep it locked on those two. I mean, that is the perspective I chose. But wow, what if I leapt around and changed it? Nah, maybe I have to explain lots of things. Well, that's making decisions based on fear, which I try not to do with at least creatively. Hell, I could even get sort of metatextual by having a scheming noble try to give them an exposition dump and they're just like, shut up, we just need to know where the overlord is so we can stop this whole thing. <laughs> and so finally, it came time for me to, having all this figured out, be like, okay, well, what are the precise events? What is the order of information that I reveal through those events? Well, I liked what I did at the end of the Flying Fancy uh, outlining, which even if you haven't heard that episode, don't worry. Basically there, I got near the end of outlining it, just writing out longhand uh, in my notebook. I got kind of snarled up with a lot of details I was juggling, and I decided to then go to Word and make um, a table with two columns, one for events, one for information, and then just list everything and then shuffle it up and down and around, matching up events to bits of information to help me just get the order of things without getting too sort of muddled and caught up in my own head. I found making that sort of info and events table worked really well for me to get out of the snarl I was in near the end of Flighting Fancy. So I thought, why not do that for the entirety of Carry Me From Coltoon? Why don't I just step out of my notebook right now and just figure out the whole thing in detail in Word? Then, you know, save that in the right part of my Scrivener file for the whole book, uh, print it out and put it in the back pocket of the notebook maybe just to double up, you know, yeah. And I gotta say, it started off pretty well, you know? I got a whole bunch of stuff down in no particular order, and then I started putting some bits of it in order, and it was feeling good. Uh, and I even made a third column, actually. I had events, information, and the order of that emotional journey that I mentioned before. I wanted to be like, okay, well, what fits into, you know, intrigue? What fits into bittersweet? What fits into hope? And so on and so forth. Just to make sure I really understood the details of the Overlord's plan and the Wizard's scheme within that plan, 
I wrote just that out in like a 20 point list of just information and the order in which I thought Volunteer of M might learn it and along with them, the reader. And then I was just having so much gosh darn fun expanding this thing. I made a little table at the top of the word file above all this other stuff with more columns. Why not for uh, act or chapter? I had six parts, you know, of the, of the story, um, the motivation tracking the move from volunteer of M being motivated by curiosity and then just trying to survive, uh, which was like a transition I wanted to have over the course of the tale and the tracking of the sort of friendship and what stage it's at until it's over at the end. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of moving bits and pieces. And if you're feeling a little confused, don't worry, uh, because I started to feel a little overwhelmed. And this brings me to one of those hooks I planted. Oh, a writer's trick at the beginning of this here podcast episode, writing under stress and actually another one reconsidering methods of outlining. See, by this point, it's March 16th, 2022. And Oliver, that's me is realizing that the pandemic has officially worn him down to the nub. On top of that, I don't know how much you keep up on news in Canada, non-Canadians, but we had a little fascist uprising uh, disguising itself as some kind of freedom trucker march drive convoy thing where they occupied downtown Ottawa, threatened people constantly, made everybody's lives living hell down there, and uh, tried to burn down with the people sealed within not one, but two separate apartment buildings, both of which within spitting distance of people I knew just to make it a little more personally affecting for yours truly. And they tried to set up something like that in Toronto, which, believe me, when I was trying to write that afternoon, thinking that, oh man, what if they set up some sort of weird fuel depot near my place and are just flying their swastikas and stuff, which a lot of them were doing and none of them seemed to be telling the ones who were doing it to stop. So... Yeah, you know, the whole thing was a little stressful on top of the pandemic and on top of some personal stuff, which I'm not going to get into. But, you know, I had a few like just for me things going on, as well as these two bigger picture things that lots of people uh, were wrestling with and continue to be wrestling with with the pandemic. I mention all this because I think when one is undergoing a really stressful time, you need to be able to step back and go, well, being creative is really important to me but it takes time and energy and an ability to function that maybe isn't as accessible as I'd like it. So I need to be a little more patient with myself about output. And maybe what I don't need, and this is me talking to me here, obviously, but something to consider, what I don't need is to take a method for outlining that helped really simplify things and get me through the last story and then like get so excited about the method that I overcomplicate it and apply it to a story where I don't know if it's even necessary. Remember, this order of information and events and blah 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 thing that I came up with was a tool to solve a problem in just the back end of one story and then I was like, oh, I'm going to use it for this entire story and I'm going to make it more complicated because it's I'm having fun, wee, uh, until I wasn't because I became very quickly overwhelmed in no small part because of the stress I was feeling myself under because of all those things I just mentioned. So, okay, that's the writing under stress uh, thing, which, uh, yeah, I probably could have just stepped back from the book for a while, even if I wasn't publicly performing my writing of the book on this podcast. But I weighed the pros and cons and thought about it and realized that it was also one of the only things really making me happy and have a sense of achievement and other things that were very important to my mental health. So if I'm not going to stop it because I want to keep those benefits as well as keep the project moving forward, then what am I going to do because I'm feeling overwhelmed by this method of outlining this story? And this brings us to the evening of March 16th as I went to bed and was thinking about how recently I had finished Flighting Fancy and I was like, well, that took me 
six weeks, even though I wanted to do it a little quicker. And now I'm at this point with Carry Me From Coltoom, and it's probably going to take about six weeks. Wait a minute. And I did some calculating of how many stories I had left that I wanted to do uh, to complete outlining the novel. Outlining, not writing the first draft. And realized that at the rate I was going, I wouldn't be finished until maybe March of next year, 2023. And something about that just really panicked me, especially because it was assuming that I had nothing happen that would get in the way of writing, that I wouldn't get ill, that I wouldn't get maybe some new job or something that would make writing really difficult, that I wouldn't, I don't know, have either something really great or really bad happen that would just, I good or bad, get in the way of writing and cause me to have to take an extended break or slow me down further. So I'm lying in bed thinking about all this and I kind of started wigging out. So I grabbed my notebook for the project and I fell back to a tool that I hadn't used since October of the previous year, a project diary entry. At first, I just penciled out the math that confirmed my theory I was not going to finish outlining until March of next year if I didn't change how I was going about things. Then I had to start thinking about what I could do differently within the realm, my personal realm, of writing and reading to make it possible for me to get more done. One sort of big revelation that I had came when I asked myself what was more important to me, reading my annual reading goal of about 60-odd books by year's end, or finishing the first draft of my own novel. Well, the novel, of course. So I made what feels like a counterintuitive vow to read less <laughs> this year. Counterintuitive because of how important reading is to writing, but I'd been keeping track of how many sword and sorcery books I had read for this project, and similar adjacent books like books on craft or books on historical fiction, stuff adjacent to the whole project as well. And I had recently crossed the 100 book threshold with about 75 sword and sorcery books and 25 books that are kind of related to the thing. If I can't write this novel, understanding sword and sorcery well enough to write it, after having read all that, then I've got bigger problems. So yeah, I'm going to keep reading and I'm going to keep reading sword and sorcery, but I'm going to just kind of nibble at it instead of, you know, taking the whole buffet and tilting it into my mouth as I've done the past two and a half, three years. I made a few other vows in terms of how I was going to change the way I went about things, including no binging entire multi-season series. Like, I don't know, I ran the entirety of Game of Thrones last year. Uh, that's a luxury I can't allow myself if I want to get this book done sooner. So that's fine, whatever. One episode a night here and there, you know, with my partner. I can watch TV a little slower if it means I write my book a little faster. But beyond those kinds of lifestyle edits, the big thing was looking at the actual outlining, which I realized needed to be re-examined as well. It felt like the level of detail for my outlines had really gone up in the second quarter of my outlining this book. So I just, to try and confirm that for myself, I went back through my notebooks and I found that I had spent about 12 handwritten pages on Disgrace the Stone, the end of Act 1, the story before that. Boy and the Blacksmith, about 16 pages. The one before that, Monstrously Slow, 14 pages. And the one before that, the very first story to be outlined in chronological order after the one that birthed this entire project, Vo. Well, that's Woman Who Floated Through Time. The Woman Who Floated Through Time. That one, I outlined the entire story and did like a character profile for a whole new protagonist for that one, right? Because in the first act, I've got different protagonists for each story, watching Vo pass through their lives. Ten pages. Just ten pages. Meanwhile, the first story of Act 2 here, with Vo and Tiravim having their adventures, Kinship and Coltoom, that was 16 and a half pages, including the new character profile for Tiravim. 
And then Sacred Thievery, which was very research intensive, that was the second story, 25 pages of outlining plus 14 pages of research notes. Oh my god. And then after that, Flighting Fancy, which I was decided would be quicker because I, you know, Sacred Theory felt pretty big at the time uh, in terms of time and energy I spent on it. Still 23 pages plus the typed up, you know, order of events sheet. And Carry Me From Coltoon thus far, 14 pages, not including the order of stuff sheet. Whoa. Whoa. There was some outlining bloat happening here, methinks. Now, sure, in the first three months of this year, there had been a lot of stress that had slowed me down, but I also felt I needed to examine my methods and ask myself, what is genuinely necessary and sufficiently beneficial to justify time spent? And what is just fun or kind of almost self-soothing, you know, because the more procedure you have for doing something, well, what's procedure? Procedures, rules and methods and safety rails. You know, if you just do enough work at the outline stage, then you can't possibly bone the story. When you write the story, you'll already have all the answers. It'll be great. You can just focus on expressing the ideas because every single idea has already been figured out. Woof. Oh boy. Of course, anything can be taken too far the other way. You know, I think about how my outline for Monstrously Slow in the first act there kind of has a hole in the middle <laughs> or pretty much a hole with a single piece of paper taped over it saying, you know, insert this kind of scene here. Maybe I don't want to go that far. Uh, but meanwhile, virtually every single beat of Sacred Thievery has been decided and I can't possibly do things in that level of detail if I want to finish this book anytime soon. And so I thought to myself, you know, dare I pants it? which if you're not familiar with certain corners of literary blogs and Twitter and stuff, to pants something is not to pull pants down, which is what I think of when you say pantsing. It's to do something by the seat of your pants, to write with minimal or no outlining and just figure it out as you go along. Hmm. Well, my, my beloved William Gibson does that, although I have said as someone who loves his work to death uh, that I do think it results in some of his weaker endings where everything just kind of collides in a convenient fashion to tie everything up. But then on the other hand, I should be so lucky <laughs> to have William Gibson's career and have produced some of the works he's produced. So maybe I shouldn't be so dismissive of pantsing. And so I was mulling this over in my little diary entry here. And then I thought, you know, maybe maybe I could alternate between writing the first draft and outlining. What valuable insights might I have while writing a first draft of, let's say, the earliest story, the 10-page outline guy, the woman who floated through time? What insights might I get in writing the actual prose for that that could aid me in outlining what remains of the novel? And then I just thought, God, it would feel good to write a new story with a bow, to actually like write the stories as opposed to outlining. And it'd be something that I could maybe privately show a few trusted others who, bless them, have expressed an interest in reading the first draft of the whole book. Because it's only the second story in the entire short story cycle of this novel, it's early enough that I don't really need to worry about even the limited continuity, you know, that I've gotten this thing needing to be maintained. So there's a bit more freedom there. And so I made one more vow. No more hyper-detailed outlines, with the possible exception of, well, the very next story, actually, the uh, novella-length one I want to do, just because for that I really want to try and experiment using index cards, which I'll talk about when we get to that. But 
even so, the order of info sheets, uh, they, they need to be simpler and only used when I really feel the need to use them. Otherwise, I should just write things out longhand in a lower level of fidelity than I have been since I started this act of the book. I also need to have faith in myself and the people who read my work, as well as listen to this podcast. Faith that they won't all just like lose interest in me and my work if it takes a minute to write it, or if maybe I even pause the podcast for a month just so I can really hunker down on the novel to get it out faster. And you know, since I wrote all of this, I have allowed myself to write almost a thousand words for The Woman Who Floated Through Time, and not only has it felt as good as I suspected it would feel to do that, I also have been reminded that there's just sort of details and questions you can't really anticipate easily in the outlining phase that you'll be forced to answer or figure out or work around or whatever by actually writing the prose. And so, yeah, that was really helpful and helped me realize that trying to cover every single possible detail in the outlining is kind of foolish. Also, in writing that nearly 1,000 words, I was reminded of the pleasure of description, which is not something that tends to come up in outlining. Like, for example, I have, you know, someone find Vaux laid out flat in a boat that sort of just floats up to a beach, and it triggers their memory, because I want to convey how this person sees Vaux as being quite big and strong, and the hair is splayed all over the show, you know, Vaux's hair. Uh, so I wanted the person who's seeing this to maybe have a memory of an earthquake when they were young and seeing the town windmill having splayed out on its side, a big tower, right, but laying down with the veins of the windmill flowing around its head like the hair flowing around Bo's head where she's passed out, laid out on this boat. Yeah, anyway, a terrible description, way better how I wrote it in the file. But anyway, <laughs> you get the idea. So to tie a bow on this, boy was I ever glad I stopped and wrote that project diary entry to center myself, to acknowledge the stress I've been writing under, to reconsider how I've been outlining things and how my goals have been prioritized, right? Like writing versus reading, and given myself permission to do a little bit of prose writing with this character that I've been moving around a bit like a chess piece with all the outlining as opposed to actually like getting in there and really trying to see through her eyes and the eyes of the people she meets. And to tie a bow on this whole dang episode, let me now tell you in minimal detail the plot of the thing that I figured out with all of this sturm and drang and existential angst, as well as the actual hard graft of the outlining and figuring out things like the thematic statement, yada yada. Carry Me From Coltoom has six parts, two at the beginning, two in the middle, two at the end. Makes sense to me. All right, first part. Brief reunion at the theater, the theater that Tiravam and his new partner have been building over the last few months, or refurbishing probably, actually, and it's kind of near where the rich people live because they're good patrons to have for a theater. So it's not terribly far from, let's say, where the Overlord's castle or palace is and where a bunch of noble people live and so on and so forth. It's a nice neighborhood. Anyway, they are nervous because the first performance of the first play will be tonight, and they have not fully tested a gimmick for making one of the lead actors seem to appear from nowhere on stage. Whether it involves dry ice or a platform raising up from underneath, haven't decided, got some ideas, point is, poof, actor appears, right? So Tiravan says, do it, you know, for the test, and poof, platform comes up, dry ice, whatever the heck happens, but instead of the lead actor appearing, it's Vo. 
And Vo looks kind of different, kind of brawnier, and is perhaps on a horse. Why not? Yeah, let's say Vo's on a horse. And Tiravam is over the moon, hasn't seen Vo in a year, runs up on stage, you know, Vo and Tiravam hug. Tiravam's like, where have you been for the last year and change? Like, you didn't tell me where you went. What the hell? What the hell? You know, and they have a brief little bit of catch up and we learn a few little details. You know, Vo's learned to ride a horse. Vo could never ride a horse before. Still isn't that great, but still, that's a change. And Vo looks kind of beefier and a little haggard and hey what the heck happened anyway and Vo's oh like oh that's, that doesn't matter let's just have a good time what's with the theater who's that guy uh, that you were sitting with in the audience holding hands what, what's the deal with that and we have a brief little bit of reunion and just the faintest hint that Tiravam's like my life has changed and Vo's like what if we had the exact lives we had 10 minutes before I left wouldn't that be great when boom a huge explosion goes off right outside close enough to blow the doors inward <laughs> into the theater off their hinges right Bo and Teravam are like, okay, let's table our friend stuff and go see what the heck's going on. They run outside, perhaps with a few other theater people, to see a huge hole in the street right outside the theater. This hole is quite deep. In fact, it goes down several stories, the equivalent thereof, into Old Coltoom, which has been set up in the previous story. Yep. But anyway, the old city that was built right on top of with the new city maybe a couple of hundred years ago. Bo's like, hey, Teravam, why don't we go down there and Find out what the hell happened. Teravam's unsure, but then again, you know, maybe they've given up adventuring, which they haven't fully articulated to Vo yet, but they don't want to risk their theater being blown up. So, okay, let's go see what the heck's going on. So they get some rope and, you know, a spike maybe and hang it off that and climb down to find evidence of what seems to be a barrel of, let's just call it gunpowder, has been set off. And not too far from it, down a buried street, which is essentially a tunnel at this point, they see a couple of people dressed identically, or they both have matching tattoos, or they both wear the same medallion. There's some sign that they are part of a group, uh, a secret organization of some kind. And they didn't mean to set off the barrel of gunpowder and got blown, maybe not to pieces, but, you know, sort of off their feet and then had their heads dashed against rocks and you know, old ancient walls or whatever the heck when the explosion went off. So this was obviously not planned. So yeah, here we are in part two, down the rabbit hole, and they find not only these two guys, but clues on them, perhaps uh, literally like a really long fuse of some kind. <laughs> Something, anyway, that creates a trail that they can follow, it leads them deeper into Old Coltoom, deeper under the city, where they're going to need you know torches to see what they're doing. As they follow this trail, they occasionally see evidence that it branches off into other parts of the city, and it's tricky to know which way to go. They decide to just keep hewing the course of this particular trail, though, which eventually leads them to part three. This is when going through Old Coltoom puts them on the path of going to the Overlord's Palace, the dictator, the pharaoh, whatever you want to call it, but Overlord is the classic Lankmar term, so I'm going with that in my notes for now, for essentially a dictator that runs the city. What puts them on that path is eventually finding a barrel of gunpowder, whatever it is, with a nobleman tied to it inside an old structure that, through clues, they realize was a temple to a faith that no longer exists in Coltoom, but it did in old Coltoom, a faith that believed in running orphanages to take care of unwanted children. And something about this makes Vo's lip quiver. We're going to get our first really heavy clue that 
her being away had something to do with a baby or a pregnancy or both. But there's no time to dwell on that because the nobleman's like, hey, you two, you got to help me. You know, there's this whole conspiracy happening back at the palace and I was the only one who found out about it. I tried to rally people to do something about it. But this necromancer who's bent to the overlord's ear, or maybe it's the other way around. It's hard to say. Anyway, I, he tied me to this thing because he thought it'd be, uh, you know, fun to blow me up <laughs> uh, instead of just slitting my throat. Uh, I can lead you to the palace. I, we, we need your help. And Voetir Van aren't heroes. As I made a big deal of at the end of the previous act of this novel, Vo doesn't believe in heroism anymore and is quite cynical about it. Tiravan, meanwhile, wants to settle down and live a safe life. But they both have pretty big motivation to step in here because the nobleman will keep trying to bowl them over with all kinds of like Game of Thrones level kind of intrigue. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't need all that. Just what are the, you know, what's the pertinent details here? And he's like, well, when the overlord's heart stops beating, the old Kultum network of tunnels, et cetera, et cetera, has a whole bunch of these barrels of gunpowder that are going to go off and cause the city to become a bloody great big sinkhole. Please help me stop this. And they're like, okay, well, that's bad. Uh, Tiravam doesn't want their theater blown up, as you can imagine, or the city full of people that would patronize it. And Vo can't possibly go back to living the fun old life with Tiravam that they want to return to if the city isn't there. Plus, you know, they're not monsters. They don't have to be capital H heroes to want to step in on this. So they go through Old Kultum with the nobleman leading the way, getting into the lowest reaches, the dungeons, let's say, of the palace, and finding their way up, carefully avoiding guards and whatnot, to the king's chambers. Almost certainly the scene I described earlier in this episode where I want to have Vo and Tiravam operating at like peak efficiency will either happen here or in the very next part. Speaking of which, getting to the palace, that's part three. They're in there. They're working their way up. That's part four, pretty straightforward, them having to navigate their way up to the king's chambers, like I said. And then part five, the showdown with the necromancer. And they managed to deal with them. Not easy. I'll figure it out. <laughs> I want to make it something clever, though. I don't want to make it just Vo hits them with a hammer. And when that's resolved, oh no, the king looks like he's breathing his last, at which point... Vo has already shown off a lot of their bloodlust, their increased bloodlust that further turns Teravim off the prospect of trying to save the friendship that both of them up until this point had a desire to save, even if they didn't necessarily both believe it could be saved. And so, yeah, even though it is ultimately a reasonable, if crazy thing to do, the bloodiness of it, the way Vo doesn't even remotely hesitate, still makes it pretty off-putting to Teravim when Vo cracks open, using one of the hand axes that she's been carrying through all these stories in Coltoom, cracks open the king's chest and forcibly massages his heart to keep it going long enough so the nobleman can rally various servants and go through old Coltoom to make sure all the gunpowder is defused and taken care of and the city is safe. And so we have this kind of fade out on the grisly sight of Vo just staring at Teravim after having yelled at the nobleman to like, deal with this fast, I can't do this forever, <laughs> you know forcibly massaging the heart of the king to keep it going. Maybe a little metaphor for Vo trying to force the friendship to stay alive. <laughs> Writing, yeah. <laughs> and so then we fade in, not to the performance at the theater, which I'd like to think is kind of a dodge I'm throwing in the first scene because, you know, somebody says, oh, the first performance is tonight. You figure the climax is going to be there or the epilogue. No, the epilogue is at the city gate. Teravim doesn't have a long time to talk. They got to get back for the performance. There's nothing they can do. You know, they got to be there for it. 
And Vo's like, that's fine, whatever. I'm going to run off into the wasteland and become a warlord or some shit. I'm going to do things for me, only for me, not even for a friend. Just me, always me. Because I'm the only one I can depend on, you know? And Tarot's like, come on, don't be like that. And they have their big final conversation with all the big emotional hooks and stuff, including that little bit of speechifying, which I will include here since I did tease it earlier. Right, so I have enough faith in myself. I'm not going to walk through all the dialogue that will get us to this big key emotional point, uh, but... They will have back and forths, they will try to get truths out of each other, they will have mixed results, they will argue, bicker a little bit, Bo will keep you know, digging her heels in, Tiravan will keep digging his heels in, and then Tiravan will do what Bo can't do. Tiravan will accept, this is it, this is over, and Bo is going to just make it be sudden instead of whatever gradual petering out it might be if Bo hung around and tried to accommodate Tiravan's new life in their friendship. And so Tiravan decides they want to at least give Vo a parting gift of a real, thought-out, sincere piece of advice they can take with them, even if they can't take their friendship with them. And this is what I wrote oh, months and months and months and months and months ago. I don't have a date for it here. Tiravan says, When people make big life changes, they briefly become prone to philosophizing and advice-giving. The former is never anything revelatory, and the latter always unsolicited. Neither is really for the victim, the listener, therefore the speaker, gently stroking the back of their own necks to soothe away anxiety about the big change. So normally, I would stop myself from even beginning to say what I'm about to say, but you are a most treasured friend who has saved my life many times, so I'll allow one of each. <laughs> oh wow so i wrote down everything i just read to you and then i in my memory thought i had figured this out but actually it turns out oliver of many many months ago wrote so then i'll have uh you know my gray mouser tiravam didn't even have a name yet my gray mouser tiravam give vo one piece of advice and one piece of philosophizing which i swear i figured out somewhere else oh well then I wrote, that'll be fun to figure out, which, oh boy, doesn't that just come back to what I've been talking about practically this whole episode about like the balance between not over outlining and just kind of kicking things down the can for your future self. <laughs> so yeah, I guess they'll give uh, some pretty cool advice and philosophize and I have two ways this might go. If it feels right, I might have Obi more bitter and just say, well, you're a storyteller and frankly, I don't put a lot of faith in stories anymore before getting on their horse and riding off, which would be a heck of a line from Vo, having been raised on stories, having had stories drive her to escape the island and had stories just in general been such an important part of her life and how she sees things. Or I might go with the less bitter version of this where I can see Vo kind of being overly just touched by the sincerity of what Tiravam says to her and then kind of splutters some justifications about essentially wanting to write off and become Conan and then thinks, and then gives Tiravam one piece of philosophy and one piece of advice. Bo, perhaps, says, I have no doubts about my decision, so these are truly for you. My hand is stroking your neck. And then we get the final image that I just keep thinking of, of Vo turning away, getting on their horse, whispering a command in the ear of the horse, a command we don't hear and riding off into the sort of deserty wastelands to the east of Coltum, far away from their friend. Perhaps even the style of prose will start to change a little bit. You know, I'll go a lot moodier, which is a much more Conan, you know, Robert E. Howard kind of thing to do as Vo rides off into the horizon, 
thundering clouds gathering. And what did they whisper to their horse? Well, what's the title of the story? Carry Me From Cold Tomb. Yeah, so by definition, that was uh, missing a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> and I do have more than that written down, and I do have a bunch of notes I need to sort of put together into what will be something easy for me to read and understand when the time comes to write the prose of this story. But it feels good. feels okay. And although I'm going to go right against a lot of what I've said about trying to thin things down with the next story, I believe that's okay because that's an experiment I'm trying. Everything after that, though, definitely going to try and do something a little closer to The Woman Who Floated Through Time. Keep it to just like a beat list with a few notes as opposed to a hyper detailed outline. Thank you so much for listening to me work my way through this, even as I'm recording this for you. This is basically therapy. Thank you. <laughs> if all goes according to plan, the next episode of the show will be an interview with former guest Nathaniel Webb, who had the gall to go do something really interesting that I wanted to talk to somebody about, so I may as well talk to them, which was to found a literary magazine. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of how that happens next episode. And as for these story outlines, I'm going to wait until I've got the entire third quarter of the book outlined before I put them online so there are no gaps like there were with this second quarter. But hopefully soon I will be putting those up. In the meanwhile, there'll be lots of cool interviews like the one with Nat and the one year anniversary episode of the show, which I've already started outlining and I'm very much looking forward to putting up in June. If you're not sick of the sound of my voice, hang around after the outro music for a special treat. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. Okay, here's that bonus thing. I don't plan to do this really ever again. I shouldn't do it, I don't think, because it might bugger things with publishers. But I can probably get away with reading to you the first few hundred words, the first real segment of The Woman Who Floated Through Time's first draft that I really like. Here we go. As the tide came in, Towen looked out. She'd been squinting her way up and down the half-frozen beach all morning, as was her recently assigned duty. Now, squatting low, she leaned on her spear, elbow on knee, chin in hand. Clumps of seaweed and broken shells decorated the line where sand met sea. One shell must have had a bit of clam still in it, for all the eyeballing a gull was giving. You keep an eye out for opportunity in this life, acting only when absolutely sure, Towen said to the gull. But when you act, you go for it with everything you've got. The gull hopped toward the shell, then back, then flew off. Towen watched it fly. It went low over the water, veering up to avoid colliding with a small fishing boat. Towen stood. 
One large foot hung over the prow of the boat, the owner laying flat inside. Asleep? Dead? It was close enough Toan felt comfortable wetting her boots. Her upper thighs were drenched when she got close enough to steady the boat with her free hand. Spear held high, she peered inside. One afternoon when Toan was eight, the earth had shaken and shook and split in places. When it was over, the village windmill no longer stood. It had laid down across the grass, veins splayed around its head as the hair on this long, sun-smeared woman in the boat. Breath warmed Toan's palm when she held it over the full, cracked lips of the stranger. Moving her hand down past a pert chin, she wondered if the stranger's closed eyes were as blue as the cloak wrapped around her like a butterfly about to bloom. Parting the heavy wool revealed a black male shirt, curiously cut clothing, and a warhammer with a beak to pierce the hide of any monster. She looked of a faded tapestry hanging in the king's hall, threaded with tales from days of old, something for Toan to look at when she'd stood guard before being sent with the others on this foolish treasure hunt. Perhaps here was a different treasure. Through the mists, this boat had come, from a direction that didn't indicate any lands Toan knew existed, dressed like someone out of legend. Had she floated up from the Age of Heroes to save this corner of the kingdom? To slay that awful wizard? Toan wondered if a kiss would awaken her. The wife was leagues away, toiling in the king's kitchen. Ah, permission seasons a kiss all the sweeter, Toan muttered, bringing her hand to the sea and then back over the woman's face, that salty droplets might join her freckles. A second, more vigorous splash, and Toan had to snap her head back, lest it be butted off her shoulders. The tawny titan tottered, scanning the horizon with confusion, then met Toan's gaze. One eye was grey, the other yellow. Both moved straight to Toan's spear. Giving the battle cry of a dehydrated toad, with shaking hands the woman reached for her warhammer, only to lose her balance, spinning into the drink and making the biggest splash of all.